Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Brooklyn-based performance artist Narcissister has become infamous around the world for her shocking and transgressive performances, which the New York Times dubbed avant porn but look beyond her plastic mask, one that resembles both a mannequin and a sex doll, and you'll see that Narcissister offers more than just shock and awe. Encompassing dance, pop music, video, puppetry, and burlesque, this Ivy-educated, Alvin Ailey-trained artist uses her body to fiercely tackle taboo subjects and boldly challenge cultural notions of race, gender, and sexuality, while at the same time exploring her own mixed-race identity. And she's accomplished this across multiple platforms, from museums and galleries to nightclubs and experimental art spaces. She's even appeared on America's Got Talent. We welcome Narcissister to Art Laws. So you grew up in La Jolla in Southern California in a family that was so different from other families, at least on the surface. I'm curious what that was like for you. Yeah, just to clarify, I was born in New York City and yes, my family moved to La Jolla, California when I was one. And my father was a professor at UC San Diego. So my parents' friend circle was quite diverse and intellectuals. And my father's family, my father was African-American and grew up in Watts in Los Angeles. So we would go often to LA to see his family, very big family. He was the oldest of eight children. But in La Jolla, Once I was in the school system there, I started to notice and feel very directly the lack of diversity. And even as a mixed kid, to feel the impact of it and to be called out for my difference. And that was quite painful, obviously. And also witnessing instances of even subtle racial violence against my parents. I remember somebody on our block when I was quite young, when we were outside playing and walking with my mother, a neighbor said to her, my mother was a Sephardic Jewish woman from Morocco who read as Caucasian, said to her, this neighbor, what are you doing with that black man? You seem like such a nice woman. And, and wow. then there were a couple instances where we had hate mail, racist hate mail left in our mailbox. And I remember my dad bringing it in to the house and seeming distressed and also explaining to us exactly what this was and what it meant. And there was tension between my parents because of the stress my father was experiencing, even on campus in his process of being tenured as a professor there. He felt that the delay was the result of racism. So there, was, there were many instances in which I just felt racial stress, tension, adversity in different forms. Right. Experiencing this and also having this household that was so intellectual and having a mother that was so poetic and she was so interested in the arts. And did that cause you to go inward in any way? Did that feeling other allow you to sort of explore things within that kind of led to your interest in art? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I just, I felt 
I don't know, somehow now that I'm older, looking back on it, I wonder, well, how much was that my choice, the way I chose to respond to the situation there? I just felt, I don't know, I felt often left out as a child. I felt like a bit of a lonely child and like other kids had fun plans and parties. And I did have a lot of that to some degree. Looking back, it's just, I don't know, I felt, yeah, I guess the word would be I felt somehow excluded often by my peers or that I wasn't fitting in. And I remember being at home often and I would say to my mother, mom, I'm bored. And she would say, it's good to be bored. And I feel that was so wonderful for her to just let me sit there with like my boredom and my feelings. And I do feel that that very much planted a seed of my creative expression and my artistry and my basically going to art as a way, as a comfort and as a wonderful form of company and as a way of making sense of the world around me and what I was feeling. So yeah, I I think absolutely. And yeah, my mother, beyond just encouraging me to just sit there with my feelings and not attempting to fill it up with anything herself. She also just, when I would say, oh, I see, I remember once I told her, I see my Girl Scout troop leader in my fingernail, like in the shape of my fingernail, I see my (laughs) Girl Scout. And she said, absolutely, I see it too. And it just was, it was just, she would just encourage this kind of surrealist Thinking That's very cool. So beautiful. Early age. Yeah. I don't know what it was I was seeing in my fingernail, but. <laughs> <laughs> and she was supporting the imagination, it sounds like. And that's really lovely. So mm-hmm. after studying at Brown, you earned a scholarship to study modern dance at Alvin Ailey in New York. What drew you to Ailey or modern dance in general? And what about it resonated with you as an art form? Well. I was a runner at Brown, actually was recruited in part to run on the cross-country team, and my father was a runner, and my parents brought me to Brown, so the first day, my father (laughs) said, you know, I'd love to go with you to your first day of practice with a cross-country team, and I I made a big announcement that I didn't want to run anymore, that I wanted to take (laughs) dance classes at Brown, and I remember my father was sort of shocked not angry, but shocked. And he went to train with the cross-country team that day instead of me. And I, as I said, I signed up for modern dance classes at Brown. And there is a wonderful dance department there. It was led by Julie Strandberg, who is the sister of sort of famous modern dancer, Carolyn Adams. Yeah. So I enrolled in dance classes at Brown. Julie Strandberg was the teacher. So there was this incredible pedigree when it came to the dance program at Brown and Carolyn Adams would come sometimes. And I think I remember her observing classes and doing an audition with us for something at some point. And so I had this incredible dance training Yeah, very inspired and also very sort of intellectual and that we learned a lot about the history of modern dance and 
African-Americans role in the history of modern dance. And I just, I think my athleticism and my desire to be a dancer propelled me very quickly so that by the time I graduated from Brown, I was technically very strong and I went to New York City, I guess a few months before I graduated from Brown to audition for the scholarship at Ailey and I got it. So the day after I graduated from Brown, I moved to New York City and started training at the Ailey School. That's incredible. And so did you actually end up dancing with the company at all at Ailey? I was selected as a student to perform in the Ailey Memoria piece, which Mm -hmm. is a piece that involves a lot of extra, often younger dancers from the school. So I did that one year and it was in the performance at City Center on stage with the company, which was really exciting. But otherwise, no, I did not dance with Ailey. I trained at the school for, I think, about a year and a half, and then I started dancing professionally from there. What did you want to convey through dance at the time? I think I just felt, you know, in the way that my mother as a child would tell me to just sit with my boredom and my feelings, and I felt very much how my art at that time or making art at that time was such a beautiful vehicle for expressing what I was feeling and observing and such wonderful company. I think I found that same thing in dance and that I felt how much I could express through my body and so much of my experience that I could express through movement. And I loved the challenge of it, that it was relatively new for me, that it was cerebral as well as physical Yeah, I just loved so much moving my body to music. I still do. So when did your visual art practice begin? Did it begin at the same time or did it begin after? By the time I got to high school, I was telling my parents that I wanted to go to this art program in in downtown LA at Parsons. And that was a program I found myself and I announced to them that I would like to go and so left to the beautiful beaches of La Jolla and took the train myself to go to stay in downtown LA for the last two summers of high school. So I was actively developing myself as an artist then and immersing myself in communities of fellow artists, even as a teenager. And then my parents didn't want me to go to an art school. So I went to Brown, but then I did a lot of art at Brown. I audited classes at RISD, which was right down the street from Brown, and made friends with students at RISD. I mean, it was always parallel. It was always a parallel practice. So at Brown, I was dancing and taking dance classes in the student dance company at Brown. I was also working on my artwork. I moved to New York, did the Ailey Scholarship, would still work on my artwork at home, at my kitchen table. And then... I worked professionally as a dancer for a number of years and I started to get injuries. I think because I started so late, it was so much stress and strain on my lower legs. And so when I stopped dancing due to injuries, then I devoted my attention full time to my art. But the art has been the longest running thread since childhood. And then I diverged into dance starting in college. Right. And at the same time you were pursuing your visual art, it sounds like you got involved in the burlesque scene. And at that time, Mm -hmm. burlesque was very different than it is today. So as a woman Mm -hmm. of color, did you feel welcome 
in that arena. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was supporting myself in New York as a commercial artist. So I was doing showroom design and prop styling for photographers and window display. And one of my gigs was for the fancy lingerie store, Agent Provocateur. And the women who worked in the store were in the rockabilly scene and they would go to burlesque shows as part of their social activities. And they invited me to come. And that's when I saw something that was very interesting to me and something that I felt with my dance background and with my work as a visual designer, creating vignettes with mannequins and windows and designing props. And then also with my visual art background, I felt I could do something that was like burlesque, but more interesting, more political. And because, yes, I was observing that the burlesque scene, at least at that time in New York, was overwhelmingly white. And there was this worship of the sort of Marilyn Monroe-esque standards of beauty and that style and that era. And I just, I thought there was something exciting about a broader acceptance of body types mm -hmm. in the burlesque scene that I appreciated a lot. It's just, it was overwhelmingly white. And, and I just, and I, I, again, I found that like continued homage to that Marilyn Monroe-esque type of beauty to be tedious and, and not complicated enough for me. And I, I didn't like also the teasing at eroticism or at sexuality. I wanted something that was harder hitting. But it was really like a very exciting, illuminating moment where I felt like I saw the future for me as an artist. And it was when I started dancing again through Narcissister. And I had this idea that I could pick a name for myself, like burlesque model, but I picked Narcissister because I wanted to point to the fact that I'm a woman of color and a sister. And I knew that I wanted my works to be very explicit and to not tease in the way that, right. that I saw so many in the burlesque scene. Well, it, your, your work has a real raw sexuality and there's a boldness to your work. And as you were trying to find yourself as an artist, your mother encouraged you to express that sexuality without limitation. So as an artist, tell us how you did push those boundaries with your own body and, and how that experience sort of maybe changed the way you may have felt about your own body image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, I just knew from the start with Narcissister that I knew that I wanted to pick a name for myself. I knew that I wanted to wear a mask. I was trying different masks before I settled on the main mask that I use. Uh, I knew that I wanted to wear a merkin. I didn't want to show my eyes. And I didn't want to show my pubic hair. And other than that, I just, I knew that I wanted the project to be no holds barred, very, very erotic, very impactful. You know, I had the example of many other artists in my envisioning of this project, um, 70s era feminist artworks. Many of those artists were wonderfully bold in the use of their bodies. I was really inspired by Matthew Barney, who as a straight, white, you know, attractive man was doing explicit things with his body for his work. 
Danny Sprinkle. I certainly wasn't the first. It's just, I knew that that was a way of sort of rewriting what female sexuality could be, not only for myself, but perhaps for other people to create a new paradigm, what female sexuality could look like and what female sexuality from a woman of color's point of view could look like. And I had experience uh, since I was very young of feeling fetishized for being as a first as a little girl, sort of a pretty little mixed girl. And then as I grew up, that fetish shift to sort of being the hot, light-skinned Black woman, all the eroticization and fetishization of my subjectivity. I mean, I experienced all that firsthand, and I, I wanted to rewrite the script from my own perspective. I'm just so fascinated by the mask and just the origin of it and how you yeah. discovered it. I can tell you about that if you'd like. Sure, sure. that'd be yeah. great. As I said, I was doing window display as part of my commercial artwork to support myself as a visual artist. And I was often in display rooms, obviously dressing mannequins. And something that I, I found in the, in the display room was this object. It's a wig display form. So the mannequin wigs would be sitting on them and it became my mask. And the reason that I had an idea that it could be a mask is because these wig display forms were very old. So the plastic front of the face was popping off the styrofoam back and the plastic fronts would be laying on the floor of the display room. And the artist self and me saw them and said that could be a mask. And so I brought one home one day and my artwork at the time involved self-portraiture in part. So I did some portraits of myself wearing that piece, that plastic piece <laughs> as a mask. And then when I started performing as Narcissister, as I said, I was using different masks at first, including that one. And I realized if I cut eye and nose holes and mouth holes in it, that it really could function quite well as a mask. And mm. soon I realized that's really the face of the character. That's really Narcissister. That's her. And then I realized that I had just taken this thing, this wig display form that I had repurposed. I had just claimed that as the face of my character without knowing anything about it and who designed it and who really owns that image of that face. And so I started doing research and I found that it was designed by a company in Los Angeles called Plasty Personalities. It was a husband and wife company. And I found the patent for that wig form. And it was designed by a woman named Berna Doran. And that became their top seller. This Plasty Personalities company had been very successful for making plastic Christmas trees and Santa Clauses, the kind that you see on lawns in California during the holidays. And this was her new invention, Verna Dorian, that she thought of to replace the heavy plaster wig forms that were very prevalent at that time that she realized that she could make this vacuum form face 
with a styrofoam back and that it could come in multiple skin tones so that the wigs could appeal to all kinds of women in the wig market. So they became the main distributor for these wig forms. And I looked online and I found that she would have been in her early 90s for Nadorian. And I had this idea that Narcissister had to meet her maker. So <laughs> I started making phone calls and I reached somebody, left a message, said, I'm an artist in New York trying to reach Verna Doran. And this woman called me back and she said, I'm Verna Doran's daughter and she died a month ago. So wow. I missed meeting her by a month, but I did go to LA and I met her daughter and her daughter showed me pictures of her mom and of the factory where they would make these wig forms. And I showed the daughters some more tame <laughs> examples of my work, like the America's Got Talent performance. And she showed the rest of the family and they were very, they're very kind and excited to see that I was continuing or I was animating this object that had been such a big part of their family. And the daughter, I'm still in touch with her and she came to a recent art show that I was in in Los Angeles. So yeah, it's very meaningful. It's, first of all, it's cool that she was this entrepreneur in you know the 50s, 60s creating this and that there's sort of this thread that you're using this object today, mm -hmm. which is so interesting to me. But I think mm -hmm. that looking at this mask and I, I guess I understand that there's sort of three skin tones that this, yeah. um, that she had created, but you sort of as a biracial woman, using this avatar, in essence, mm -hmm. to confront these issues of identity is so interesting. And I just, what for you, what was this mask able to say about race? I know that's sort of a broad question, but what were you able to say about race using this in your performance mm -hmm. with this mask? Yeah, well, what's really interesting about the mask is when I met the daughter, I was able to find out why that face, who was the original model for that face. And the daughter told me that her mother was a dumpster diver of the time, which meant that she would go to estate sales in Los Angeles once they had closed. And something that she loved in particular finding was mannequins. So this was the 60s and it would have been 50s era mannequins that were being thrown out. And she modeled the face of the wig form that became my mask after these 50s era mannequins that had the standards of beauty that were prevalent at that time. So the wide set eyes, the pointy nose and the prim mouth. And yet <laughs> the mask, because she wanted to appeal to all kinds of women in the wig market does, as you said, come in three different skin tones. There's a dark skinned mask that still has those same features <laughs> of the wide set eyes and the pointy nose and the prim mouth. And it's wonderful for me I actually have the masks in four different skin tones. And I find it's a wonderful way to make statements about race because it's just, I, I mean, it just, the mask just, I've said this so many times before, it just speaks so beautifully about the malleability of identity and that race can be a construct and something that is put on and something that we ourselves, it's a part that we can play, a role that we play, and also a role or a part that people give us to play. And I think there's something about the mask, the fact that I can put on the Caucasian, very light-skinned mask 
and play a certain role. And then I can take that off. And underneath, I have the very dark skinned mask. And then suddenly I'm playing a different role. And then I can choose sometimes to wear the middle tone mask that is more in alignment with my skin tone. And what does that mean when it can be from a distance on stage, sort of indistinguishable from my own skin tone that I have this mask on and it's not quite my face. You know, what does it mean that the features stay the same no matter what the tone of the mask is? I don't know. I, I think there's just something there about this performance of race and of identity that the mask makes possible in such a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Do you feel that the mask is necessary in order for you to convey what you want to convey about these issues? I mean, does the mask serve as a form of anonymity in order to convey some of these issues freely? Mm -hmm. I love the anonymity that the mask affords. I love that it makes the statements, I don't know, very stylized, sort of strange, that it grounds the project very clearly and distinctly in art and in an artful expression and exploration of these ideas. I feel that, and I've said this before, that I, with the mask, I feel I can make statements that are so much broader and more complex and more nuanced than I could without it. And I would never be interested in doing this performance work or any performance work without the mask. I just think that without the mask, the work would land as narrow and narcissistic and unnuanced, that it would just be about me and my experience. And I'm much more interested in saying something broader. It sounds like the mask provides a spectrum of identities that you're speaking to. Yeah, there's so much more possible with the mask and the fact that I can portray many different characters, many different identities, many different subjecthoods within one performance piece. I mean, within five minutes, for example, I have pieces where one piece in particular where I'm 13 different characters within the space of five minutes. And the mask and the ability to shift between races and between genders and between generations makes all that possible. So what are you trying to say about gender with the mask? I mean, I think there's something about playing with this object that represents conventional, quote unquote, beauty standards that I think is very interesting because very few people actually look like that. And so I think starting with something that's fake and fabricated, almost like a doll. I don't know. I think it's just an interesting place to start with these explorations of especially womanhood and the pressures and the challenges that we face as women as far as appearances go and the emphasis on appearance that's so real in our society and the emphasis on not aging and the fact that the mask never changes, I think is very interesting. And my desire to continue to portray this character as I get old, I've committed myself to portraying this character until I die. So God willing, I will still be performing as narcissister when I'm a very old woman and my body is reading very old, but the face of the mask will not have 
changed. (laughs) And then I think the mask can easily become a man. And if I add facial hair to the mask, then I can portray a man very easily. I can add some lines to the mask and a gray wig, and I can act as if she's aging. I just, I think there's also, I, I learned this very much from my mother, this thing of women. I know men do this too. I can't speak to that experience, but wearing masks as women, just of acquiescing, of being supportive, of being attentive, being calm and kind, all these pressures I feel as women. I mean, my mother was incredible. The masks that she would wear, I learned it from her. I mean, she, I think being a Jewish woman from Morocco was even more so for her that a woman must behave in a certain way. A woman must respond to situations in a certain way. And mostly it was to be kind and accommodating. And that wasn't at all who she was under the surface. But it's so interesting because you have this mask, the kind accommodating mask, and then your body saying something very different, right? Mm -hmm. It's breaking all the boundaries that the sort of the cultural boundaries that people find as acceptable. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that part, like the difference between what your body's doing in your performances and the mask. There is a contrast between the expression on the mask and what's happening with my body and what I'm doing with my body. And I love that pairing. I mean, I feel the mask is very expressive. I also love that because I'm not emoting through my face or that one can't see whether I am or not, that it leaves so much for the body to convey. And I think as a dancer, I had a lot of training that assisted me with how to express a lot through my body. And I also just think because of what we've talked about before is because of how my body is already labeled in this society, in my being mixed race woman of color, light-skinned black woman of color, exotic woman, however you want to call it. There's just so much that my body already means. And then I can add intentionally so many other layers of meaning my own by how I costume my body and the gestures that I make with my body. And explain that, like what kinds of costumes are you wearing or not wearing? Mm -hmm. To that end, I think of Burka Barbie versus Marilyn Mm -hmm. or I'm every woman. Like, I mean, I just think that you, depending on what you decide to put on your body, it says so much about, it almost transcends the mask in so many ways. And I just would love for us to hear more about those choices. I guess I'm really interested in archetypes and I feel that there is just something so essential, I guess, in all of the the characters that I choose to portray. And it's almost like I was brought up with a certain kind of like girlhood or womanhood, which, which somehow is informed very much by dolls. And I do think that these doll characters that we're exposed to as children, I think they are archetypes. And as we get older, we can unravel more the meanings that they have had for us or held for us and impact. And I think there's something about, for example, the Burka Barbie 
that was very much, I mean, she is, I made her into, she's housed in this life-size Barbie box. And I was interested in expanding definitions of womanhood. And I remember at the time I was reading about these female warriors who would hide machine guns under their their burkas and cross through security checkpoints with various kinds of ammunition hidden and just thinking about that brand of womanhood and and how radical that felt and dangerous and this idea that it's hidden that's what's hidden under the cloths and i was also when i grew up my mother had books from morocco in our house and i was fascinated by the women fully cloaked with just the eyes peeking out. And yeah, I was excited to explore what that womanhood could mean and what's hiding under the veils and also the symbolism of the veils and of unveiling. And then Marilyn, obviously another icon and has another direct line to my childhood and that I thought Marilyn Monroe was beautiful as a child. Like, most children do and had a poster of her on my wall and my mother commented at one point and said her beauty was fabricated that's not her real name her hair isn't really naturally blonde that way that bra she's wearing accentuates her bust line and for me that was all revelatory i thought that this woman came out of the womb looking like this and that she was beautiful in a way that I would never be because I don't look that way and I didn't know anything about how we could fabricate our looks and manipulate people through these choices that we might make of dyeing our hair or wearing big bras or whatever it was. I don't know. I guess I'm interested Often I work with things that I find oppressive. So whereas that Marilyn Monroe standard of beauty from my childhood or that I experienced again being revered in the burlesque shows, I find that oppressive. So as Narcissister, it's very satisfying for me to embody that which I find oppressive and then to complicate it and essentially tear it down and to render it as something else and to in that process, make it mine. I sort of do that again and again with all of my works. What's interesting to me that sort of this idea of oppression inspires you, but I look at your pieces, there's burlesque, there's comedy, there's eroticism, there's theatrics, puppetry, there's dance, there's so many elements to each piece. And I guess from a physical standpoint, where do you begin? So much of your own work from sewing the costumes. I'm just so curious that how you put these things together. What is the germ of the idea that then becomes something bigger? I just love the aesthetic of the burkas and women moving in them. And I wanted to embody that character. I wanted to feel what it would feel like to don a burka and to move around in it. So that was the inspiration for, for that piece. I mean, the inspiration is always different. And then I, I bring in all of these different methods in order to execute my idea. Like for example, for the forever young piece where I portray the life cycle of a woman from birth to death to rebirth, 
I knew that I wanted to play all the characters, that I wanted to be the newborn, and then I wanted to be the toddler, and I wanted to be the young child, and I wanted to be the teenager, and so on. I wanted to portray all the roles, and I knew in order to do that, I would have to use prosthetics and dolls, and and that was my strategy for playing all the roles. So that's where the puppetry comes in. And for example, for my I'm Every Woman piece where I get fully dressed in accessories, accessorized with items only pulled from my orifices, that was the challenge I put to myself for that piece to reverse the striptease, again, finding this typical striptease that one sees in burlesque, oppressive and unsatisfactory. I wanted to reverse it. So in order to do that, I realized, well, I couldn't fit everything that I wanted and needed in order to get fully dressed and accessorized in my orifices. So I needed to design a wig that could hold the bigger items like the shoes and the purse. And so then I designed this big wig. I wasn't even intending that that character would be black when I thought of this piece. But then when I started to think, well, what kind of wig could I make that could have a compartment that would be Uh hidden? And I thought, oh, well, it would be a big afro that would allow that, that would hide a compartment. So then suddenly this character became a Black woman. And also I realized that I needed my mouth to hold items for her to get dressed with in addition to using my anus and my vagina. So that was the first time I cut the mask in half and performed showing my the lower half of my face only because I needed my mouth. <laughs> right. So, no, I, just, I love that element of improvisation and your work is so do it yourself. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about it going back to the seventies and being inspired by artists from the seventies and eighties. And it's just that element of improvisation is so interesting to me. And this use of humor, which is, you know, when I think of improvisation, it's just, it's humor is such an integral part of your work. And I'm just so fascinated. How has that become a tool for subversion for you? Was that something that you went into Narcissister, this project thinking about using humor or, you know? It's so subversive. I mean, I, I feel like humor is one of the main things that differentiates what I'm doing from porn because, hmm. and I feel the humor it complicates the work in, in such a wonderful and essential way that I'm doing something very erotic. And at the same time, I think people are laughing at what's unfolding more than they would be getting turned on by it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are a few people, but I think the majority of people are not turned on by what I'm doing, even though it features nudity and explicit content. And I understand that my body, at least now, falls within these narrow confines of conventional beauty for women. It's just, I think that people seem to laugh and respond more to the humor than they do to any kind of simple titillation. And I'm not interested in taking myself too seriously. I do think these issues are problematic and and dangerous and challenging and fraught i also love to do my part in exploring them or dismantling them 
in a way that veers more towards the lighthearted or towards the strange or towards the abject and therefore to do it with a strong element of humor rather than being heavy-handed or didactic or, I don't know, dark. Right, right. And it makes it more accessible in some ways. I mean, using humor. Right, um, more accessible and also sort of it jolts our conventionality, right? And and allows people the freedom to kind of experience something unexpected and Mm -hmm. different than the narrow path that we're used to walking. Yeah, I know like a lot of comedians say that humor is the sugar pill that allows like for like the ingestion or of the more intense, complicated ideas or realities in our society. And I can really relate to that in my own way. And also for me, the laughter that I hear when I'm performing is a wonderful dialogue between me and the audience where I don't see them well because of the mask, but I can hear them. So I feel like I'm putting forth an idea or making a statement with my work. And then I hear laughter in return and I feel there's like an exchange. And then I put forth another idea or gesture. And then again, I'll hear laughter and I just feel there's a dialogue in that. And I, and it's wonderful gift for me to feel that the audience is with me. It's really nice. Well, to switch gears a little bit, let's talk for a second about America's Got Talent. I mean, how did this experience come about in such a different platform for you? And why did you choose to be on that platform? What, and yeah. what did that exposure even lead yeah. to? Once I created this narcissist character around 2007, I started to find success very quickly. I, I was performing a lot and And I guess the scouts, the talent scouts from America's Got Talent saw me on one or more occasions. I'm not sure. I started to get emails from one producer in particular. He was very persistent. He sent maybe four or five emails before I responded. And when I finally responded, I said, I don't see my work on America's Got Talent. It's just, it's too explicit. I don't think it has a place with your audience. And he was just insistent. He said, America has to see Narcissister. There's so much more to your work than the erotics. And he kept saying that America has to see Narcissister. And I just, I wasn't invested. So I said, fine, I'm willing to do it. If I can skip all the lines, if you give me an appointment for an audition where I don't have to wait. And if I'm selected that I don't, I don't have to do any of the cattle calling. And he agreed to it. So I went for one simple audition. I didn't perform anything. I just showed up as Narcissister and talked to them. They filmed it, took some pictures. And then I did get selected just based on showing up. And it was very scary suddenly finding myself backstage at the Hammerstein Ballroom. It was the biggest venue I had performed in. It was completely full. I mean, there's like, three balconies that go up very high in that space. It was completely full. And suddenly I was backstage. I realized the people who do the cattle calls, at least they had had many steps before they got there. But suddenly there I was uh, backstage with a number with tons of other performers. I mean, it was like a film, you know, like jugglers and people doing balancing acts and everyone in a small area backstage. And I said, I didn't want any filming without my mask on. And they said that means that I have to wear my mask the whole time. So I was back there with my mask 
for several hours. And finally, <laughs> they said, you're up. I mean, it was insane. I, it, was, <laughs> it was very scary, movie cameras on me, and I didn't know what to expect. And I just, by that point, I had been performing for a couple of years at The Box, and I'm so grateful for it because at The Box, you perform five nights a week at 1.30 or 2.30 in the morning. And so I was used to this boot camp of performing even when I was exhausted, when drunk people were yelling at me, when I was backstage and the music was just so loud in the club. And so that was such wonderful preparation for this moment when suddenly they just said, you're on, walk on stage. And I was in front of this huge, huge crowd of people. The response is so great. I just, I feel like from the judges and from the audience, there was such, I mean, it's like they've never yes, seen anything like it. They were booing though. When I stepped on, they didn't like the mask. Really? Really. Tell us about that performance for people who haven't seen it. I'm curious yeah. if you could describe it. Yeah, that performance, again, another icon, archetype, whatever you want to say from my childhood, the topsy-turvy doll. So that doll that has one woman if she's upright and then you flip her over and flip her skirt down and then there's a different woman. And sometimes it's a red riding hood one where it's red riding hood and you flip it over and it's the wolf and then you turn it to the back and it's the grandma and turn it upside down the other way. And it's the hunter or, or sometimes there's a racial element to these dolls that sometimes is not correct, which is the white woman with the flowery skirts and the, the summery hat when she's upright and then you flip her upside down and it's a black woman as a servant with an apron and a headscarf. So anyway, I had these dolls as a child. And so I decided that I wanted to make a piece where I, I make myself into one of those dolls. And I realized my work can be quite acrobatic. A lot of that again comes from my dance training and my yoga practice and I realized how expressive I could be when I'm inverted. And so I made this costume where I have four faces. So one when I'm upright, one when I'm upside down facing front, and then one when I'm turned to the back upright and one when I'm upside down to the back. Yeah. And I, I made a dollhouse prop that this topsy-turvy doll interacts with. And I designed the prop so that she can be upside down, looking like she's right side up and use her feet as hands to sort of bring the house down, so to speak, and climb on top of it. So it has wonderful illusions and trompe l'oeil effects. And that was the piece that America's Got Talent picked for me to present. And towards the end of the piece, in my version, I take the costume off and then I'm this four faced creature, but mostly naked. But of course, on America's Got Talent, they said that I needed to make the piece much shorter and that I couldn't take the costume off entirely. Well, I love how you spoke to them with your back to them with the mask <laughs> facing. It was... Yeah. So yeah. what does exposure lead to for you? Well, I mean, I mean, it was a wonderful challenge and it was a wonderful experience. And... I did make it through that first round and I went to Las Vegas and I was like, I was like the top, they rank the, the performers like based on what they feel their potential is to be like the star of the show. And I was ranked like number two out of 
<laughs> hundreds of performers, which is exciting. And it was an honor. It's just, I failed very badly in Vegas because the reality is, is Narcissist does not belong on America's Got Talent. And <laughs> <laughs> that became apparent very quickly. I think the first performance that I did, the Topsy Turvy one, I think there's something wonderfully punk rock about my being on that stage with the mask and being able to turn my back to them and the fact that because of the mask, they couldn't consume me. But this is a, a very powerful, well-oiled machine and they will find ways to exploit the performers. And I think in Vegas, <clears throat> that's what they were after. And and they did succeed in that with me. They didn't get me without my mask, but it just was, I don't know. I felt like I ridiculed myself in the second performance and I felt somewhat ridiculed by them. But the gift is that they never played footage of that performance. So it was a wonderful experience. And yes, I thought, wow, I've been on America's Got Talent and I did so well. That means that I'm going to... <clears throat> <clears throat> have many other opportunities of this kind. And if it, it wasn't true, in a way, I feel this is a righteous thing. And in a way, sometimes it's frustrating, even for me. It's just, she's somewhat limited in the arenas in which she can appear because I'm not willing to compromise my content. It right. just means that it's not appropriate in most and many contexts. And even with the feature film that I made, Narcissister Organ Player, that did achieve some crossover success and that it premiered at Sundance and at many other esteemed festivals and it had its theatrical premiere at Film Forum here in New York, which was such an honor. It just would, like, it would never be picked up by Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is. And I was told that to a great degree, it's because of the content that I, even for that film, I did not want to clean up my, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to take out the explicit content and clean up my work. That film for me was really, I guess, the basis for me understanding your work in a more personal way. I have to say before, I mean, I always admired your work and I always followed your work, but I really, I never truly knew the nuance of it as the character. And also the fact that you really revealed the relationship with your parents in such an intimate way. I guess my question is, is that how were you able to do both of those feats, but still maintain anonymity? Like that was to me the most incredible part of the film. Mm, thank you. That film, you know, it was really a journey, the process of making that film. And I never intended to put as much of myself in it as I realized I had to in order to make the film work. I wasn't intending to use my voice for the voiceover. Um, I was intending to use archival pictures of my family, but not pictures of me. And my advisors for the film, one in particular, Louis Erskine, who I was so honored to work with as an advisor, he said, you've got to show your face. The people are they're not going to relate as well to this story if you don't and i i really thought about it because i really wanted the film to work but i thought i've been building this character for 10 years by that time when i started working on the film and i intend to be this character until i die as i said and i thought i'm not going to i'm not going to blow my 
vision and my belief in in this character and and the anonymity of her being part of that just for this film as important to me as it is so i found a strategy of using my hands to cover my face at least partially in the photos and you can still see me of course and i am at peace with that because for me, what's really important in this project is the intention of anonymity and to convey that intention. Because in this day and age, true anonymity is impossible. It just is the internet, you can find out really who anybody is, what they look like, you know, and you can do the same for me. It's just, yeah, to preserve that intention, I think, is what's most important. Yeah, so that's that's how I did it, is covering my the pictures with my face and, and I had to use my voice in the film and and I'm okay with that. It all works, which is so great. Yeah. I mean it's it's such a I'm just thinking going into this project, it could have gone in so many different directions, yet all these elements work. So I just um okay. yeah, I just I enjoy yeah. that. So And your your film really explores the complex bond that you shared with your mom. Mm-hmm. Wondering if you can talk more about that. Yes. Gosh. I I guess the film talks about it. I mean, I, I was very, I guess, exceptionally close with my mother. And there were several reasons for that. I mean, many reasons, I guess, known and unknown. Um, My mother was an immigrant, as I said, from Morocco. Her family that she had left was in New York. My parents left them when when my dad moved us to California. So my mother was sort of alone in, in a lot of ways in California. She, as much as my dad, she and my dad loved each other deeply and were together really until they died, even though they divorced at one point. There was a lot of tension in their relationship and a certain level of estrangement within the relationship. My mother had a heart condition. She had rheumatic fever as a child in Morocco, and they didn't have access to penicillin, so she had a heart condition. I think all these things sort of made her more, I think, needy, dare I say, as a mother, and more eager to connect even with her children. And she was wonderful. I mean, it was, she was a wonderful person to spend time with. I, I truly loved spending so much time with her. I mean, I say this in the film, she was the primary relationship in my life. And that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I never married. I never had children. I have always been very career driven. However, any time I had off from work, I always went to see her and loved going to see her in California, or I would bring her here to New York and yeah she was a wonderful presence in my life and it was a huge impact for me when she died um and yeah is there a symbolism in the title of the film for you yeah there is um because of my mother's illness again started with her heart but spread to other parts of her body because uh, when she got her first heart surgery in this country, she was given a blood transfusion and she got hepatitis C from that blood transfusion. It was before blood was screened. 
And so that affected her liver. It just was, there were basically, my mother's whole organism was so present in so many ways and, and impacted me in so many ways as a child and as I grew as an adult. And so organ player, there's something about pointing to the effect of her organs, the health or lack thereof of her organs on me. And also what my mom talks about in the film that we carry the history of our ancestors in us, in our bodies and in our organs and in our skin and in our blood. And if we're not aware of the impact of that story or of those beliefs, that that can dictate who we are and how we live very much. And the practice is is to be aware of all this. And, and so the film, yeah, it talks about issues of race and the skin is an organ in the body. And it talks about my mother's heart condition, affairs of the heart of all kinds as well. So yeah, so the title is symbolic for all these reasons. A lot of the things that your mother talks about, we're able to see through these home videos that your brother Bernard took, yes. um, and which just really adds so much to the film. And I'm just wondering, how did Bernard reconcile with giving his own documentation of your mom, especially as, since it was so personal at being at the end of her life? Right. Um, yeah, that wasn't easy. Um, as I said, creating this film was a journey being a first time filmmaker. I had made so many art videos based on my narcissistic performances that were successful. And I thought, oh, this is just an extended art video. And it wasn't at all. <laughs> you know. And so I tried to make the film without his videos, because I thought, well, that's, that's his documentation of his experience with my parents. And I got to a point where I was stuck with the film that I just it wasn't working. And I asked my brother, I said, you know, I'm remembering that you were filming mom and dad a lot at one point. Can I use those videos? And he was not open to it at all. And it was a point of tension between us for a certain period because I knew my brother would never do anything with those videos, that they would just sit in storage. And I just thought that was such a shame, but he, he felt it was his work, one, and two, he didn't want to confront them because it he felt it would be too painful for him to watch that footage hmm. of him with my parents and that they were gone now. And he finally relented, you know, Lewis, again, my, my advisor who most recently edited the Miles Davis film, he said, you know, do whatever you need to do, burn incense, meditate, you know, you've got to get those videos from your brother. And <laughs> my brother, he, he finally relented and, and, became sort of part of the film team, which I think ultimately was very meaningful for him and for me. And when the film came out, he came to many of the screenings with me and my editor, Taryn Gould, and spoke about his process creating those videos and his feelings about them being in the film. So now I think he feels like it's our film and it's about our family. And he's very happy that I used them. But yeah, it wasn't easy to get them. So. Did that have any further impact on your relationship? With my brother? Yeah. I mean, I think this has been a bonding experience, really. Mm -hmm. His own work and therefore, you know, his own experience with my parents, you know, became part of the film and became integral to the success of the film. 
I think that's been a bonding experience. And he recently, he and his partner Carmine are philanthropists and collect art mostly by artists of color, Black artists. And he recently put a book out that's very much about the impact of his relationship with our father, who again was African-American, on my brother's life and on his sensibility and how it's impacted him as a collector and why. And so I think he took that example that I made of looking deeply into the impact that the relationship that I had with our parents has had on me. I think he sort of started to think about what that was for him and spoke about that directly in the book that he made. That's great. You know, I think about in your film, you talk about your mother being an integral part of defining the meaning behind your work. And sometimes you would do work and the deeper meaning at the time would elude you in some way. And I'm just wondering, with her passing, how has it changed the way that you personally define your work? I mean, how do you approach the meaning behind your work now? Well, I guess I learned so much, you know, from hearing her talk about my work. So at one point, I felt much more confident about doing it myself. I think I sought out other people to do it for me. So after she died, I started working with performance scholar named Ariel Osterweiss. And coincidentally, well, we realized after I reached out to her that we knew each other from the Ailey School, that she was also on scholarship there. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And we reconnected many years later and we would have discussions about my work and the deeper meanings behind my work. And and she has since written many things about Narcissist Her, which is really an honor for me. But yeah, she, she taught me even more how to articulate around my work, around what I'm doing. She has this wonderful theory about the virtuosity in my work and that I transferred the virtuosity that I learned or achieved as a dancer training at Alien After into what I'm doing as Narcissist Her now with the work that I do, putting things in my orifices, that there's a certain amount of virtuosity that comes with enduring the discomfort or pain or training involved or the, how methodical I have to be when I, when I'm putting things in my body and then performing with those things in my body and then extracting them so seamlessly and effortlessly. And again, gracefully, she sees real virtuosity in that. And, and I love that. So I learned to speak about these things also with her teachings. And also I let go of, you know, I think when I was earlier on in this process, I was very impacted by these art world expectations that an artist must know how to speak about their work in these very theoretical ways and must reference philosophers from the canon. And I let go of that. I allow myself now to speak about my work in very simple, accessible terms. And if theorists want to write more complex things about my work, that's one, that's wonderful and, and I'm honored, but I let go of any expectation for myself to speak about my work or even to understand my work in any complex terms. Does Narcissister meld into your personal life in any way? How do you see that? Um, I mean, again, what's wonderful about having this alter ego and wearing the mask and costuming myself so heavily is it creates a natural 
separation between myself and her that I really appreciate and I feel to be very real. I love to say that Narcissister is nobody, that she's an empty mask laying on my studio floor and that anyone can animate her. And I believe that to be true. And this distance from her really works for me. I, I have no interest in playing myself on stage. And I love that after a performance, I can walk right out into the crowd and no one knows that it's me. And I think that I draw from my experience, my personal experience when creating my narcissistic works very much. I mean, as I have talked about here, it's just that I'm very different from her <laughs> and, and I like that. And I can work out some of my issues or concerns or cares through her. But at the end of the day, I'm very different from her. I did have a therapist at one point who said that that healing for me would mean that that Isabel and Narcissister would be interchangeable. But I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> would you say that Narcissister has changed Isabel in any way? You know, I have things that I say to that end, which is like, which I believe to be true that my practice with Narcissister is to learn to remove my symbolic masks as easily and effortlessly as she does and to practice non-attachment in the way that Narcissister does and that she sort of tears through these different identities and subjecthoods again, like many times within the course of a short performance piece. And so I like to say that that's a personal spiritual practice for me. It's a, that um, in portraying her, that I learned to do those things myself more gracefully. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. I think I understand something much more clearly about the performance of identity and of representation through her. I think it's very satisfying for me. I mean, it is very satisfying for me to embody this character and to allow myself to be my true erotic self with a lot of safety, the safety of the stage and the safety of the mask that is deeply satisfying. Is it ever lonely being Narcissister? No, no, it, it's, I mean, in fact, I mean, it's a little lonelier now during the pandemic not being Narcissister because when I'm Narcissister, I'm, I'm traveling a lot to perform and meeting up with my fellow performers in all different places around the world and scenarios and enjoying performing for other people and watching other people perform. I love when I do a performance, I always offer to do an artist talk after because I don't love the idea of subjecting audiences to my work without giving them an opportunity to give feedback or respond. So I often do Q&A sessions after my performances. I do artist talks, again, that have ample time for Q&A built in. So yeah, it's 
you know, as many of us have experienced, it's a little more lonely now right. without her. Right. <laughs> so what is next for you, for Narcissister, now that things are changing a bit? Yeah, well, um, I am working on a new documentary. It is about a quarantine I did in Los Angeles in the summer of 2020 with art dealer Jeffrey Deitch at his house in Los Angeles, which is the former home of closeted room movie star Cary Grant. I've seen pictures of that house and I love the uh, art that he has. <laughs> it's yeah. It's pretty amazing. It's an, an amazing collection and it was a wonderful opportunity for me to document some of my narcissistic performances in that house alongside the art in his collection and knowing the history of that house. So the film, it's again in very early stages, but it's a meditation on masking of different sorts. Obviously the Corona masks that were and are so prevalent, the masks that public persona inevitably wear, the narcissister mask, the mask that Cary Grant was wearing as a closeted gay man um, living in that house. So I'm excited about that. I just started working on the edit and Jeffrey has been very generous and very excited to work with him also on this project. I have some residencies coming up that I'm excited about. The Bemis Center in Nebraska that I was supposed to go this winter and that got postponed so I'll go next winter. I got another residency at Sculpture Space in upstate New York, I started recently making participatory sculptures involving extra narcissisters, which is something that I've done for a long time or since the beginning of my project is incorporate other performers as narcissister. And so I'm excited to make more participatory sculptures. And I'm working on new performance works for when I can start performing again, possibly in the fall. I've started to get some offers. It's a little hard to believe, but maybe it will be possible. That's right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in an ideal future, where would you like to see Narcissister go? Yeah, I mean, God, goddess willing, I would love to have the honor and the ability to portray this character for many years to come. So I would like to be performing as Narcissister when my body reads as a very old woman and to behold what that means. And at that time, I mean, I would love to continue to get support for my work, which I have gotten a lot of support to my work to some degree. And in other ways, I feel that, you know, there's a hesitancy to embrace what I'm doing as art or also a, just a confusion about how to define what I'm doing, which again, I'm excited about, but sometimes I wonder if that limits my opportunities. I have so many ideas for my work, so many ideas for performances, for sculptures, for films, for videos. And I just love, I would love to continue to get platforms to share that work and to get support through opportunities, through funding, through visibility so that my message can continue to have a place in the world and to impact people positively. At the end of this, we do this thing called the quick draw. Six questions, 60 seconds, one word answers. First thing that comes to mind. Okay. Favorite pop song? Golden. 
My Harry Styles. Favorite dancer? Judith Jameson. Favorite book? Things Fall Apart. Favorite song to dance to? Just Breathe, telepop music. We had Angela on that, as Angela our Angela McCluskey. She's on our podcast. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Most underrated artist? Klaus Nomi. Favorite guilty pleasure? Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> Great one. That's the best one so far. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much. We really um, enjoyed talking to you. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.